We're reading from 1 Peter, chapter 2, and we're starting at verse 4. So 1 Peter, chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, thank you, Amanda. Um, Great to hear God's word read, friends. uh, Good evening. Uh, Chaplain is online. Great to have you with us as well. Uh, We are really at one of my favourite parts of the New Testament tonight. Uh, 1 Peter 2 is just a stunning section. More of that in a moment. But please make sure you have it open in front of you, either in your Bibles uh, or on your phones. If you'd like a Bible tonight, uh, please uh, put your hand up and one of the team from the back will come and um, hand one out to you. Uh, I wonder if you've ever noticed that um, when someone is farewelled from a job or a sporting team or your year at school or they retire at the end of a career or maybe they're even given some sort of public award, uh, that the focus always falls squarely on what the person has done, their output, their contribution. For example, uh, Wendy was here for 33 years and no one did payroll like Wendy. She was reliable, prompt and efficient. Well done, Wendy. Enjoy your retirement. Here's a mug. And you know, it's, it's easy in church, actually, to fall into this sort of trap as well. So when I'm farewelling people from Norwest, it's easy for me to do something similar. It's easy for me to talk about a family's output. You know, the Gregsons have been at Norwest for 20 years. In that time, they've been in a community group. They've served on morning tea. And even in 1987, they turned up for a working bee. We wish you well, Gregsons. There's a problem with this, and I wonder if you've spotted what it is. It's that at the end of the day, every single person in the world wants to be validated and accepted 
and loved, not for what they've done, but for who they are. They are two very different things. Uh, I remember a number of years ago speaking to the Bishop of North Sydney who was telling me that at his retirement, he received one of those big cards where people get to sign all sorts of things. Now, this man, his name is Paul Barnett, uh, was a highly respected historian, a scholar. He wrote many books. He was an academic who lectured in both secular and Christian universities. He was a bishop within the Anglican Church of Australia. And he said to me that when he read the card after his farewell, not one person mentioned my books, he said, or my PhD or my university fellowships. Rather, it was full of comments such as, thank you for letting me cry on your shoulder that time. I thank God that you walked with me through that rough season. And he said it meant the world to him. My point is this, friends. We find it so easy to talk about activity, but actually what is of much deeper significance is who we are, not what we do. Now, I start with this general observation tonight because it's relevant to what we're going to find in God's Word in 1 Peter 2. Because today's passage is one of the most stunning descriptions in the whole Bible of who God's church is, of who the family of God is, of who the household of God is, in a sense of who we are, Chapel Lane, here tonight. And here's the similarity. Very often when we talk about church here, the church, the people of God, we talk about the things we do, don't we? Activity, how we gather together, how we sing together, how we sit under God's Word together, how we reach out to the community around us together, how we pray together, how we financially support the ministry of the gospel, all fabulous things. But behind all the things we do, you do, actually stands who we are. Actually, who God thinks we are, who God has made us to be. When we see it, you cannot unsee it. So tonight in 1 Peter chapter 2, it is a peek behind the curtain of who God sees his church, that's you and me together, to be. And we're going to start in verse 4. Please make sure you have that open. So straight away, verse 4, we're into a metaphor. And the metaphor is where Jesus is called a stone. More than that, he's called a living stone. The metaphor runs through the next six verses. It is, of course, the metaphor of the temple. Now, the temple was made out of stone and was a remarkable building built 500 years before Jesus. It was torn down in AD 70, um, about 35 years after Jesus' death. And Jesus foreknew that that was going to happen. He prophesied about it in uh, the Gospels, in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. Of more importance is what the temple was for. The temple was the place where heaven touched earth. That's the picture. Whenever you read about the temple in the Bible, that's what needs to come to your mind, the place where heaven touches earth. Uh, the, the temple was a place where God himself chose to connect with the world below, which is why, and maybe this makes sense now, of all the clear and strong rules in the Bible about the temple, about who could go in, where they could go, and when they could go. And the first thing we're told about Jesus in verse 4 is that he is the living stone. Okay, Now, the temple was built out of hard, cold, inanimate stone. The old place where heaven met earth was static, formal and rigid. Peter here says there's a new temple. There's a new place where heaven meets earth. It's not static, formal and rigid. It's living, dynamic, embracing. Because it's not a building. It is a person. 
Jesus is the new temple. He is the living stone. Now, if you read this section carefully, verse 4 particularly, there is a side note here. In, in light of this stunning revelation, this incredible new reality that God is now going to meet with people on earth in a new way, you'd almost expect the world to burst out in applause. You'd almost expect every knee to bow and every tongue confess the greatness of God because He's coming to meet people in a new way. But no, and the side note is as sobering as it is pastoral. It's verse 4. Have a look. The living stone is rejected by humans. Now, this is sobering because it reminds us that the world will not burst out in applause at the Lord Jesus Christ. The world we live in will reject Jesus as king. If you are a Christian, you absolutely know this already. But it's not just sober, this is pastoral as well. Because uh, remember, this letter is written to Christians under enormous pressure and conflict for their faith. And a letter that was written to people like that, just talking about how wonderful God is, without acknowledging their own context, would have been tone deaf at best and pastorally irrelevant at worst. No, Peter's a realist. And God's stone, God's temple, God's meeting place between heaven and earth will be rejected by humans. But don't miss this. Just because people will reject Jesus, God will not. And we read this stone, this man, this king is so precious to God himself. And Peter's point in verse 5 is this. First century Christians living under enormous pressure and harassment from an oppositional community, you are becoming the new place where heaven and earth will meet. That's what Peter's saying. And to us, he's saying this, Norwest Anglican, 21st century Christians living alongside the accusation and the judgment of an oppositional community around us. You are also becoming the new place where heaven and earth meet. Uh, the church is becoming the new place where people can meet the true and living God. You know what? That is our experience here at Norwest. This year so far, more than 50 people in the first seven months of the year have either turned to Christ for the first time here or been baptised. That's amazing. Chaplain, you think you come along here week by week just to sing a few songs and get your spiritual fix? You need to think again. You need to lift your eyes. Because 1 Peter 2 is showing us that God has renewed the way people meet Him. And right now, what stands at the centre of that is His Son and His Son's church. And you, Chapel Lane, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Peter's point here to the churches is really remarkable. I wonder if you look at verse 5, whether you notice how striking is the Old Testament language that's being used. Uh, it's language that alludes to the Jewish temple. Uh, it's language that articulates the Jewish priesthood. It's language that references the Jewish sacrificial system. But remember who Peter's writing to. Peter is writing to a church full of unclean, impure, one-time idol-worshipping Gentiles, not Jews. And what he's saying to them is, you know all those stunning and historical and Jewish promises and privileges and preferences? They now belong to you. And Norwest, as unclean, impure, one-time idol-worshipping Gentiles sitting in the room here today. That's right, you. I think we've forgotten, maybe not known, what a gift has been bestowed upon us. What a privilege has been given us. The fact is not one of you nor me deserves to sit in any seat in this building here tonight. 
gathered as sons and daughters of the King. Not one of us deserves to be here except for the fact that we have come to Him, the living stone, the true temple. I want you to think for a moment that you're living in a culture where you're being harassed for your love for Jesus. Maybe there's pressure to worship the Roman emperor. Maybe your family's being ignored by those who live around you. There might be threat of imprisonment or death for you. Maybe your children will be taken from you. Imagine being in that context, right? And then your pastor writes a letter to you, a wonderful promise and hope in this letter from Isaiah 28 for those under stress and pressure for their love for Jesus. That's verse 6. Have a look at it. And I reckon this would come as a beautiful comfort to those under pressure, that there will be a new stone and that those who trust in him will never be put to shame. Now I want you to imagine that you live in a culture where people say you should put yourself first. It's not so hard, is it? I want you to imagine you live in a culture where emotions are seen as the arbiter of truth, where disagreeing with someone is no longer seen as a way of debating life, but rather a way of espousing hateful rhetoric. Imagine trying to raise your children to humbly trust God's word despite the painful backlash from friends and teachers alike and the ongoing dross of social media that spews out lies to your children, calling them to keep trusting in Jesus. So exhausting. And then you're reminded of a wonderful promise and hope from Isaiah 28 for those under stress and pressure for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is verse 6. And it does come as a beautiful comfort that there is a new stone and that those who trust in him will never be put to shame. Friends, verses 7 and 8 are sobering and difficult. Have a look at them. 7 and 8 remind us that there are people in this world who will never come to Jesus They have rejected him as God's Messiah and they do not believe him to be the meeting place of heaven and earth. And instead of seeing Jesus as the cornerstone of a new temple, well, he's a stone for them as well, but he's more like a stone in the middle of a path which they stub their toe on that they trip over. Now have no doubt the end of verse 8 is difficult to hear, yet consistent with the whole sweep of Scripture. Peter says, They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now, Peter's purpose in saying this, you might be asking, why would Peter say that? He's got a very clear purpose. It is to comfort his readers. What he's trying to show his readers here is that the rejection that they feel because of their faith in Jesus, the alienation they experience for trusting in Jesus, was predicted by God long ago. That's what Peter's saying. Uh, This verse is making the point that what's happening to them right now, what's happening to us right now in many ways, even down to the lack of belief of your persecutors, is part of God's sovereign rule. Peter is saying to all of us that if you ever find yourself on the receiving end of hostility or ridicule or estrangement because of your love for Jesus, that is absolutely within God's control. Hold on, is what he's saying. Well, friends, we now get to verses 9 and 10, uh, which are stunning verses. You know, I said at the start that tonight we would get a peek behind the curtain. We'd learn not so much about what the church does, but rather who the church is. We're now at that place. It's It's an amazing section. You know, religions throughout history have always had its elites. Okay? Religions throughout history have always had its elites. Men, generally men, 
who sit between God and the rest of humanity. Men, generally men, who dispense God's kindness or judgment. Men who speak on behalf of God. Men who judge on behalf of God. And to be clear, in case you're wondering, these elites are not like you. They are special, better, almost divine. And even if a religion's doctrine does not claim that, its practice almost certainly does. You will see this in Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and of course in many Christian expressions. You'll find it in almost every cult. You'll see that the leaders are different to the people. You see the gap between God and people has to be filled by a spiritual elite. In the first century, when Christianity was forming, it was also confounding. As it was forming, it was also confounding. And that's because there had never been anything like Christianity before it came. You see, the religion of the day in the first century had plenty of elites, Pharisees, Sadducees, temple guards, ruling councils. Pagan religion of the day had its priests and elites as well. But Christianity from the start was entirely different. As it was forming, it was also confounding. And you can almost imagine a conversation between an early Christian and her neighbour in AD 40 going something like this. Ah, says the neighbour, I hear you've become religious. Great. Religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or your holy place? We don't have a temple, says the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? Where do your priests do their rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God. Jesus is our priest. No priests? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favour of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, says the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. Your neighbour blows up. What sort of religion is this? You see, in Christianity, Jesus is the final everything. But more than that, and our peek behind the curtain continues, because in verses 9 and 10, Peter goes a step further. He actually says that as you come to the living stone, you become like the living stone. Okay, think about what this means. So Jesus is the temple, right? The place where people can now come to meet with God face to face, the place where God can be found. Look at verse 5. And now you are being built into a spiritual house. The church has become the new meeting place with God. We saw that Jesus is our final priest, right? Yes, but not only Jesus, you too are now priests. See that in verse 5, it says, you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Verse 9 again, you are a royal priesthood. What, what do priests do? Priests mediate the presence of God himself. You now do that. Jesus is the final prophet, right? What did a prophet do? Prophets declare the truths of God, right? Look at verse 9. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You will now prophesy and declare the truths of our God. Well, Jesus is our final king, right? Yes, but look at verse 9. You are a royal priesthood. That means all of us are kings under the king. You see, Christianity 
formed and confounded. Why was that? It's because Jesus removed any pretension of spiritual elitism. There's no longer a category of religious men who bring God to humanity. Why? For one man did that. The man God, Jesus Christ alone. He is the temple. He is the prophet. He is the priest. And he is the king. And he calls all of us to be his temple. All of us uh, to declare his praises and prophesy. All of us to represent him as his priests. All of us to rule with him and be part of his royal family. No spiritual elites. No spiritual elitism. Everyone in God's church called to serve our God with their gifts as they live in this world like Jesus did. Now I want to finish by showing you one more thing. One more thing that I trust stretches your mind and enlarges your heart and gives you a new delight at belonging to God's people, to the church here at Norwest. It certainly did that for me. I want you to look at verse 9. But you are a chosen people. See that? Now notice what it does not say. It does not say you are a choice people. It does not say you are the best people. Because sometimes people mistake the electing grace of God to mean, oh, you're better than others, are you? No, I'm not better. I'm not choice. I am chosen. There's nothing good in me. But have you seen the good in Jesus? God sets his affections upon you, Norwest. You are chosen. But more than that, did you see verse 9? You are God's special possession. That is amazing. That means you are treasured and you are prized. That tells you how loved you are by God. Think about this. The God who made the whole of creation, all the galaxies, all the forests, all the oceans, the gold under the crust and the diamonds in the ground. But they are nothing compared to you. And here's the point, until you know that, and I'm now speaking specifically to those aged between 14 and 20, until you know that, everything you do in your life will work against that. You will fight and work and argue and sacrifice and shipwreck all things to fill that void. But if you become filled by that, that knowledge of how prized and special and treasured you are by Jesus, that will change everything for you. You will not shipwreck your life, your relationships, your future. To be clear, when Peter says here that we are special and prized, this is not some throwaway line. He's not just saying that to make you feel better because even within this passage, he tells you how expensive you were to Jesus. Now maybe you're thinking, I didn't see that. Let me show you where it is. It's sort of hidden, but it's there. It's verse 10. Because read verse 10, have a look. That is a quote, but we don't realise it. It doesn't look like it, but it is. I wonder if that rings any bells for you, verse 10. It is the devastating and beautiful story of the book of Hosea. Let me read verse 10 for you. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. That's the story of Hosea. Let me remind you. So in Hosea, we have a situation where God's people, Israel, are so disgraceful, so adulterous, so idolatrous, that God says to his prophet Hosea, we're going to teach Israel a lesson. Hosea, what you're going to do is go and marry that woman over there. See her? Her name's Goma. She's a prostitute. And you're going to marry her and your marriage to that prostitute will become a graphic illustration of my marriage to Israel. Marred by cheating 
and infidelity and lies. And then God says to Hosea, and then you're going to have kids, two of them, and I'm going to name them for you. The first kid you have, you have to name not loved. The second child you have to name not my people. Just so we're clear on this. That's Hosea chapter 1. But then in Hosea chapter 2, the book changes, the prophecy changes, the tone changes. And in chapter 2, this same God who has rejected his people because of their lies and adultery and idolatry, he says something new. To Israel, who he said, not loved, not my people, he says, in mercy, he reaches out and he says, you are my people and I am your God. Now look at verse 10. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. What Peter does here is he takes the language and the imagery of Hosea and he applies it to you, which means, Chaplain, it does not matter who you are here tonight. It does not matter whether you come regularly or what brought you. Once you were not a people, now you are as you come to Jesus. Once you had not received mercy, now you have as you come to Jesus. That is how precious you are. And the place that Peter is speaking of here, the ultimate place where you find mercy, he's been telling us about through this whole section. It's the place where all those Old Testament practices and promises come together. It's in the new temple, the new sacrifice, the new priest, the new prophet, the new king. Peter is saying it is only and ever in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who sees you as precious, who sees you as his special possession. That is who we are, Noest, as God's church. That is why we exist, Noest. We are not some religious social club created to give awkward people helpful community interaction. We are not some finishing school for children as they transition from childhood to adulthood safely and morally. We're not that at all. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, God's special possession. That is who we are. That is what drives what we do. We will declare Jesus' praises. We will share who Jesus is. We will speak of our unworthiness. Why? To magnify his worthiness. And all we do in this place is focused on that. Every ministry we run, cooking sausages in 10 degrees last night, is focused on that. Every Dollar we give, every minute we serve enables us to be that people. For we are a people, chosen but not choice, who have received mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his church. What a joy. Let me pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that when we slow down to read it, as inspired by your spirit, it comes alive. Father, will you forgive us for our small-mindedness when it comes to who we are and who you are. Father, for the way that we have so individualised church that it's about what we like and what we want, rather than seeing that you have done a great work, that this is the place, this outpost of heaven, where a world lost in sin and darkness can come and find the hope found in the Lord Jesus. The fact that you would use people like us is outrageous and amazing. Father, inspire us as one to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.